the annoyance of Paul. Thanks be to God. I love this story. We're actually going to continue reading the remainder of this chapter that we started working our way through last week, Acts chapter 16. And if you were with us at that time, you may remember that the first half of this chapter told of the Apostle Paul and his traveling companions being led by a vision or a dream of sorts, being led to Macedonia on this, their second missionary journey. Well, they eventually find themselves in the city of Philippi, where in the passage we read last week, we met the woman named Lydia, who was at least one of the, if not the first converts in the city, and quite likely one of the leaders of this newfound and growing congregation. We noted at that time that for Lydia, this step of faith could have been quite costly. Because if not wealthy, she did at least have some means, and she had some level of upward mobility, which for her as a foreigner living in a new city, this would have been something that was very difficult to forfeit. And yet she is willing to give all of that up for this newfound faith. So keep in mind, this is not like coming to faith in Jesus living in a place like Springfield, Missouri. Philippi, as we're going to discover in greater detail in a moment, was not necessarily the most accommodating place when it came to this new faith. In fact, sometimes followers of Jesus faced outright hostility. That's actually what we're going to see take place in this situation involving Paul and Silas today, the story that Austin started reading a moment ago. So just to recap the first couple of verses that Austin read, in verse 16, we saw Paul heading once again to that place of prayer, the place of prayer where in the story last week he met Lydia and the other women, and yet again, at this place of prayer, Paul makes a new acquaintance. This acquaintance, though, is quite the contrast from Lydia, who he met at the beginning of the chapter. We are told that Paul and his friends were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. There was some sort of power or demonic presence, something working in her and through her that enabled her to gaze into the future. And participating in this activity made her owners a handsome sum of money. So she meets with Paul and follows them around, him and his entourage, for several days, yelling out, these men are servants of the Most High God, they're proclaiming the way of salvation. And at that point, as she continues to follow Paul, Paul, as Luke tells us, becomes greatly annoyed. Now, the obvious irony at work here in the story is that her statement on the surface is true. And is in line with what Paul and these other missionaries had set out themselves to proclaim. And yet we find Paul becoming greatly annoyed with this girl and commanding the spirit to leave her. Now on one hand, this seems to be a little bit inconsistent. Because this is coming from a guy, from the Apostle Paul, who in his letter that he writes later in his life to the church in Philippi, he says, yeah, of course, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, some from goodwill, but 
I don't really care either way as long as Christ is being preached. Whether in truth or pretense, I rejoice. That seems to be what this girl is doing. And Paul becomes greatly annoyed, even though she is speaking words that he would affirm and agree with. And yet he rebukes the spirit, commanding it to leave the girl. So what's going on here? Why is Paul so frustrated? I think there are at least a couple of possibilities, and maybe it's a combination of all of these. First of all, I think it's quite possible that Paul is frustrated because this girl's antics were quite likely going to attract some potentially unwanted and negative attention on these missionaries and compromise the effectiveness of their mission or their ability to move around and work freely among this new community of Christ followers, which by the time we get to the end of the story, we're going to see that's actually exactly what happens. They are imprisoned. They, cannot, they can no longer move freely and work at building the church. And I actually think we see this sort of uh, motivation quite often from Paul. He is often depicted as calculating the risk, not the personal risk per se, in an attempt to avoid personal difficulty. Now, he's completely fine with suffering for the sake of the gospel, but he does strategize what are going to be the most effective means of carrying out this mission. So he doesn't, for instance, go into a new city and stand at a busy street corner with a bullhorn declaring the gospel. First of all, because they didn't have battery-operated bullhorns at that point. But he doesn't stand at a busy corner and just blast the people of Philippi for their misguided pagan worship, even though he thinks it's misguided. But he understands that an approach like that would be absolutely counterproductive. It's just not helpful, and he wants to be effective in the task that has been set before him. So I think it's possible that part of his frustration is this. This girl that is following them around, bringing this negative attention, could compromise the effectiveness of their mission. Secondly, her statement is true, at least on the surface. Paul himself believed that Christ was the Most High God and was offering the way of salvation. That was a true statement. However, without qualification, that true statement, when coming from an individual who was steeped in a polytheistic worldview where there are many gods, and we can just add this new god they proclaim to our host of other divine influences and authorities that have a say in our lives. So, Without qualification, the message from this individual was going to be confusing for people. So was she an ally? Well, on the surface, it appears as though she is proclaiming a message in line with what Paul himself would proclaim, but she wasn't really an ally. They, they didn't want new converts to this faith to be confused about their monotheistic claims. I think that's another possibility. And then finally, and perhaps most notably, I think it's possible that Paul is simply frustrated by the oppressive system and the people who were victimizing this girl. She's undoubtedly being exploited. She is used for her ability to make somebody a little bit of profit 
and that's it. That is the sole source of her value. She is being dehumanized. She is just a, a cog in this system, and I would imagine that that also upset Paul. So whatever the case might be, maybe it's a combination of all of these, but Paul speaks to the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ and delivers this girl not only from that dark, oppressive spirit, but also from the oppressive system, the exploitative powers of man in which she is stuck. So this is a power confrontation when when the power of the forces that are at work in her life are shown to be inferior to the power of Jesus Christ. Now, I completely understand that a story like this can seem a bit archaic. As we operate under a different worldview or a framework that doesn't really allow room for these sorts of unseen supernatural realities. I completely understand that. But this would not have been uncommon at all to hear a story like this in the pagan syncretistic culture in Philippi. And it wouldn't have been uncommon or seem strange to Luke's audience as he is telling this story. But when we bring the story into our context, it does seem a little bit outdated. But I, I think if we could remember the nature of sin, as we discussed during our Lenten series, what Fleming Rutledge argued that the fact that sin is not just an isolated action we participate in or even an isolated series of actions we participate in. Sin is not just bad things we do, but it is a power that we are under, a power at work in our world that we need to be delivered from. If we can accept that understanding of the nature of sin, I think even a story like this begins to make much more sense even in our context of the 21st century. So the girl in Acts 16 is clearly caught in the crosshairs of the convergence of these unseen, dark, spiritual forces and the evil human systems that are animated by those dark spiritual forces. But when those powers are met with the presence of Jesus, Luke explains that light overcomes darkness in a dramatic way. But, as we will see here, light overcoming darkness, delivering this girl, light overcoming darkness is not always seen as a positive thing, especially by those who stand to profit from continued darkness. That's what plays out in verse 9. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul. They're not concerned about the girl. Their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So we see clearly here that Paul and Silas are entering into hostile territory. As soon as their message, as soon as the work that they are doing in this city begins to infringe upon the customs or the comforts, or in this case, especially 
the profit generators in this finely tuned system and society, as soon as all of that starts to occur, there is immediate pushback. We're going to continue to see the effects of this pushback as we read the rest of the story, but I want to pause here because I think at this point in the story, there is another possible direct correlation to our current situation and perhaps situations we will face in the future. And this is it. When we follow Jesus, there is always the possibility, and I would argue there is always going to be some sort of pushback from somebody or some group of people. There is always going to be pushback. When we announce the kingdom reign of God, there will be pushback because not everybody accepts or recognizes the the reign of God. There is going to be pushback when we seek to live a life of peace or when we value life in a culture enthralled with violence and death at all levels. There will be pushback when we fight for the dignity of human beings in cultures that elevate profit above people. This is what we see happening in Acts chapter 16 with the slave girl who is used for the profit she could generate and nothing else. There will be pushback. Now, to be fair, as followers of Jesus, when faced with that sort of confrontation or that sort of pushback, our goal is not, at least in my opinion, our goal is not to force the politic or to force society to fall in line with our view of the world. I think that would be a losing battle, and in the end, I think it would be counterproductive to our goal. I don't think our goal is to become the figurative kings and queens that rule the world and can coerce adherence to our values. In fact, I, I think we need to take a very different approach. I think we need to avoid acting like somebody stole our power, or acting like somebody stole our world, and if only the world were more Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian, so I think it's a good thing if the world is more like Jesus. That is the goal of our mission, but it is not to steal something back that has been stolen from us. I think that approach is misguided and will lead us into some devastating places. Instead, I think when faced with confrontation or faced with pushback, I think we faithfully engage in the public square. I do think we are called to faithfully engage in the public square, but I think we do that first and foremost by simply proclaiming that Christ is king. And his kingdom functions in a particular way that restores creation. And so when we engage in the public square, we can highlight ways in which governments or ways in which societies at large are seeking to destroy creation rather than restore it. And when we identify those ways, we can creatively imagine and enact new possibilities that align with God's reign in this world. And that is how we witness to the kingdom of God. It is not about accumulating power. Admittedly, that would be a safer route. The route of simply proclaiming that Christ is king and enacting the kingdom values in our lives, that's not the safest way to go about this witness. 
The safest way is to accumulate power and then make the rules. But Jesus calls us, I think, to simply announce his rule and live as though we actually believe he is ruling and let the chips fall where they may. And as Paul is going to discover in this story, sometimes the chips fall in an undesirable way. Verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore, their garments, tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Suffice it to say, at this point in the story, this is not a great day for Paul and Silas. I think that's fairly obvious. I don't know that it was their worst day, but it certainly isn't their best or the easiest for them, which I think raises the question, well, how are they going to respond when faced with these very challenging circumstances? What are they going to do on one of their worst days when faced with this confrontation and this pushback? Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Probably not the best way to win friends and influence people. Hey, we're, we're stuck in this crowded cell with other prisoners who most sure aren't having their best day either, and we're going to interrupt their only opportunity for sleep by praying and singing hymns. There's going to be a negative correlation with prayer for these prisoners, I'm sure, from this point forward. So maybe this is a point where we shouldn't mimic Paul, I don't know, but still, this is a terrible day for Paul and Silas, maybe one of their worst. They've been beaten, they've been thrown into jail, and yet they're able to keep things in perspective. This is a terrible day. We are facing really challenging circumstances, this confrontation, this pushback because of our faith. But Jesus has been raised back to life and has opened his kingdom to us, and we are living in the reality. We are ushering in this kingdom. They keep things in perspective. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, if these terrible things that are happening to me, this was later in his life, but if things just as terrible as happened in the city of Philippi, if that is advancing the gospel, I'm satisfied. I can remain joyful even on, on my worst day. What, what an example to follow. What, what trust and peace. They demonstrate during difficulty, reminding us that it is possible. It is possible to remain joyful and content even on our worst day. In fact, that disposition of joy and trust and contentment is actually a light that is shining and communicating a great deal about the faith of Paul and Silas to those who are watching. I'm reminded of the words of St. Francis of Assisi, who said, All the darkness in the world cannot extinguish the light of a single candle. Paul and Silas are undeniably in a dark 
situation, both literally and figuratively, yet the light of Christ is still shining through them. Crazy things start to happen. Before we read about some of those crazy things, I I think this is one of the most striking features of Christ's kingdom and the rule of God in our world, this disposition that Paul and Silas display in prison. Peace, joy, hope. It is a shocking disposition. It speaks volumes to those who are watching. This is One of the things that Alan Kreider argues in his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. This is the disposition. What Paul and Silas are demonstrating in prison in Philippi, this is the disposition that enabled the improbable rise of the Christian church in the middle of a hostile empire. Joyful. Patient hopeful trust, even on the worst day imaginable. It speaks volumes to those who are watching it. So here we have Paul and Silas having been beaten, thrown into the inner prison in stocks, praying and singing hymns at midnight. Paul probably isn't the only one becoming annoyed in this story. Verse 26, and suddenly... There was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. It's an incredible scene. Quite remarkable, unless, of course, you are the jailer then it is a nightmare. And we see the fact that for the jailer, it is a nightmare because assuming that everyone has escaped, he decides that his only option is to take his life. Would have been better than the alternative of facing the shame, maybe even the physical violence when his supervisors discovered that he had failed in his only duty. Verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now perhaps the salvation this jailer is interested in is twofold. I mean, it's quite possible that the salvation he has in mind is salvation from this very practical dilemma that his failure had landed him in. How how can I get out of this mess? Paul and Silas reassure him, look, it's going to be okay. We're all here. Don't worry about it. Don't do something drastic. But then they seize that opportunity to also open this man to the salvation found in Jesus. Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, 
and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and your life will be opened up to new realms of purpose. And the man believes, along with his entire household, and they are all baptized. What a story. Something I think worth noting at this point as we begin to wrap this up is that for all of Paul's strategy and all of the thought that goes into his mission, selecting a new destination on his journey, I mean, he's clearly a man that is concerned with the effective ministry of the gospel, yet it is still a gospel that is depicted as advancing slowly. One individual or a small group of individuals at a time. We're not constantly seeing throngs and throngs of people coming to know Christ outside of a few rather unusual episodes recounted in Acts. And yet seeds are still being planted, one individual at a time. Individuals are brought into the faith, and eventually, over the years, a kingdom is built. A nation of priests is being built, but it doesn't happen immediately. It is just this slow, patient growth. And I think that growth model of the church in the first few centuries of its existence is important for us to keep in mind. We see Paul and his co-laborers patiently proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. And the kingdom of God is being built but it's happening with one person over here, a few people over here. Lydia and the women gathered at the place of prayer, the jailer in Philippi and his family, the jailer who is worried about his life and his safety. It's just slowly growing, but that slow, patient growth is enough. The kingdom of Christ is advancing, and it continues to advance throughout the book of Acts, sometimes in big ways, but often in small, sometimes in very unnoticed individual ways, but it continues to grow slowly and patiently. We can find strength, I think, in simply understanding that the kingdom of Christ is going to grow. It will advance. It will be successful. But the kingdom seems to be content to grow and advance one individual at a time. So this is what I want to leave us with this morning. Kevin, if you all want to come up, and Austin, if you want to join me as we prepare to celebrate the Eucharist. This is what I want to leave us with this morning. That thought from St. Francis, all of the darkness in the world can't extinguish the light of a single candle. Your light is shining. Your light is shining. It's shining in very simple ways, sometimes not ways that are overt or world-changing, but it is shining in very small ways like how you respond in difficult situations. And maybe the light that your life is shining is only going to be witnessed by a couple of people, but that is enough. 
That's how this kingdom we are a part of grows. One mustard seed at a time being planted. Just a little bit of leaven, as Jesus said, mixed in with the batch that eventually is spreading. And it's not seen. A lot of times you don't notice that it's advancing. Sometimes maybe it seems like the kingdom has stalled or that it is regressing, but it is moving forward. And our task as followers of Jesus is to join that patient work. Would you stand this morning? We're going to gather together around the table of our Lord, celebrating the life we have as found in Jesus Christ, his body, and his blood. We invite you to join us in this meal. We'll make two lines down the center aisle. You can take the elements on your own, and when you get to the front, somebody will speak the words over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You are invited by Christ into this patient kingdom, this joyful, hopeful, trusting, content kingdom. By way of invitation, I'd like to say a prayer for us today. O oh God, the King of glory, you have exalted your only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. Do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to that place where our Savior Christ has gone before, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning as we celebrate the life we have in Christ?